Greetings and welcome to episode 15 of Beyond Huaxia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Today we have a very cryptically worded title, Who are the Han? With who being spelled H-U. What in the world could we possibly be talking about? Well, what we're going to be talking about today is the history of ethnic identity on the East Asian mainland. Okay, it's a very fascinating topic, uh, very complex, but I hope that at the end of today's podcast you will emerge with a better understanding of where the words Chinese and Han uh, come from um, and what the implications are for our present-day conceptions of what sort of ethnic identities exist on the East Asian mainland. Now, what sort of modes of identification have existed throughout Chinese history? Okay, well, there are actually a lot of ways of thinking about what someone's cultural or group identity uh, may be other than our modern-day conceptions of race, which is actually a very, very recent phenomenon in the history of recorded civilization. Now, there were physical modes of identification, okay, that have existed, you know, they go way back in time to the earliest records that are recorded in the Chinese script. Okay, there were ways of identifying people. You could identify people according to their facial or body hair. Hair in general was seen as something that could reveal uh, whether or not you were a civilized person. Um, if your hair was restrained or bound in certain uh, 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 complex ways. You were usually regarded as more civilized. Restraint in general was something that was regarded by the literate urban sedentary peoples as a mark of civilization. If your hair was unbound, if it was flowing, uh, you could be seen as a crazy person, um, or you could be seen as an unrestrained profligate person, someone who was unable to restrain their inner um, their inner impulses and passions. And you know, interestingly enough, these these ideas were expressed or perceived through your hair, the hair on top of your head, uh, 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 facial hair, oftentimes, uh, whether or not you had a beard. Um, it was often commented upon people who came from Central Asia or the Middle East into East Asia. To, uh, their big, bushy beards were often a very uh, a defining feature that was often commented upon by the Chinese, the Persians, and the Sogdians, often who came in, a, in, in the capacity of a, a uh, merchant. Okay. Um, bone structure. You have a lot of uh, ways of describing people who either have high noses and deep eyes, okay, or the opposite. Um, the ornamentation of the physical body, okay. Um, in Confucian culture, it's not usually seen as a very good thing to um, uh, alter the physical body in any way shape, way, shape, or form, because the body is something that your parents gave to you, um, and to injure that body, to deform it in any ways, uh, is to not be filial towards the parents, not respect the body that your parents gave you. Um, and so within the Huaxia lands, you'll often see um, any sort of uh, forcible alteration to the body um, being interpreted as a form of punishment, right? You get tattooed and sent off to manual labor if you've committed a crime, or you might have an ear cut off, or you know something like that. Um, whereas 
barbarians, people who were barbarians, were seen to have tattoos and pierce their bodies, and they seemed to do it willingly and as a form of uh, honor. Uh, that was seen as something in the Huaxia lands that was not civilized, to willingly pierce your body, to willingly tattoo your body. Why would you undergo voluntary deformations of the body that your parents gave to you that was seen as unfilial, unconfucian, and therefore uncivilized? Other ways of thinking about whether someone was civilized or not was simply your body's physical posture. Okay. See, there's a lot. A lot of these things are things we don't really think about anymore because we're so obsessed with race. Um, but before race became the category through which all human identities were interpreted, there were so many other ways of thinking about um, whether someone was civilized or not, or cultured or not. Um, posture. Or do 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 you comport your body in a relaxed, formal symmetry? and serenity? Or do you adopt a crooked posture? Do you engage in gyrating dancing performances? Okay. Um, uncivilized people would be described as squatting down in monkey-like fashion when northerners sometimes talked about southerners before southerners really had been able to um, cultivate themselves according to northern sedentary norms, uh, the northerners often would look, look, look down upon the southerners and say that their proximity to barbarians meant that they sit in certain ways, they, they crouch down in certain ways, and simply the posture of their body was considered uncivilized. Um, and yes, there was also a discourse of skin color. Um, it's a, it actually goes way back in time that there has been a prejudice against darker-skinned peoples um, in East Asia. There was a term for it. It was referred to have dark skin, was referred to as having kunlun skin. Kunlun, uh, that was the main term to denote people who had darker skin. Um, same as Kunlun Mountain. Uh, the Kunlun Mountain is a famous mountain uh, to the sort of the north marking off the Tibetan highlands. Okay, now originally... Kunlun just meant sort of a geographic place somewhere extremely distant, okay? It could also then accrue the association of something foreign, okay? Uh, Kunlun itself, this name, may have been a Sinitic, a Chinese translation of a foreign word. But then this association of something that's far away, distant, perhaps foreign, gains its specific application to people who have darker skin. One, it could refer to East Asians themselves who had uncommonly dark skin, or just the darker-skinned East Asians among us. Okay? It could then also refer to uh, more naturally darker-skinned Southeast Asians uh, who would come into contact with people on the East Asian mainland. And then eventually it also became associated with people who actually had black, curly, frizzy hair from Africa. And you get your first people from Africa who are seen uh, in the flesh in East Asia during the Tang Dynasty. All right, the Arab and Persian traders who come by boat during the Tang Dynasty. We're talking 600s, 700s, 800s AD. Okay, and then the term Kunlun was applied to them as well to describe their darker skin. And it did not really have positive associations. Okay, uh, we have you know literary tales and anecdotes and whatnot about a lady of the court being having darker skin than the other ladies, and she's being referred to as the Kunlun lady in court, and she says, "Oh my God, that's such a pejorative, derogatory term," um, and she wants to stop being called Kunlun. 
Um, oftentimes, the Africans who were brought to East Asia, the South, and Guangzhou during the Tang Dynasty, uh, sometimes they would come in the capacity of being slaves of the Arab and Persian traders. And of course, that did not impart a very positive connotation either for the first black people, uh, you know, or pe first people from Africa. Um, to be seen in the capacity of slaves. Uh, so yes, it had a generally negative connotation. It also could just mean that you labored in the fields. You labored under the sun, um, and therefore your skin got darker, no matter how white it may have been originally. You labor under the sun, and that is a mark of your inferior social status, uh, because people who are at the top of the social pyramid labor with their mind. All right, They labor indoors. They wear lots of clothes. Um, they don't do backbreaking labor and sweat in the heat of the sun. Okay, so white skin in that sense um, would have a positive connotation because the whiter your skin was, uh, the less manual labor you had to engage in. Okay, um, and it meant that you were indoors in an office somewhere laboring with your mind, not with your hands. And if you were a woman, you probably weren't laboring in that sense if you had really white skin. It just meant that your family was wealthy enough that you didn't have to go out and work at all. And therefore, you also would be more likely to have lighter skin, and that would be a positive connotation because you're from a, a, a wealthy, good family. However, Let's not overplay this. These were not the chief mode of interpretation throughout most of East Asian history, or indeed throughout most of world history. Race or ethnicity, as we think of it today, is a very modern concept and should be thought of chiefly as a subjective state of mind. Subjective meaning that the meaning of race or ethnicity uh, changes depending on the perspective of who is viewing it, who is interpreting it in different times, in different places. It is not constant. It is Race is a state of mind to a very large degree. Take an example of a recent president, all right? Barack Obama. All right. Barack Obama is often uh, described as our first black president. Now, let's interrogate that perception. Okay, Barack Obama himself has a white mother and a black father. All right, a mother whose ancestors are from Europe and a father whose ancestors are from Africa, Kenya. Okay, so if you want to think genetically or biologically, Barack Obama is 50-50. Okay, um, so if you're thinking of race as some sort of immutable, eternal constant that you can identify with great accuracy, um, then he's just as much white as he is black. However, that's not what matters in the end. What matters in the end is the perception, the social perception of what Barack Obama is, okay? And if Barack Obama walks on the streets of any American city, 99.9%, .9 if not 100% of every single person who sees him will say, there goes a black man. Because the perception that he is black, it comes in relation to the default identity of the majority of the people who live in America, i.e. white skin. He's darker than us, therefore he's black. Even though genetically, he's just as white as he is black. Okay, however, this is again, it's all relational, it's all subjective. If Barack Obama became the first president, uh, uh, became a president of Kenya, where his ancestors are from, okay, then he would actually have significantly lighter skin than all other Kenyans, 
And from their perspective, they'd look at him and they'd say, this is a very light-skinned man. And if he became president in Kenya, don't be surprised if most Kenyans said he's our first white president. Because it's relational. Okay, even though the genetic constant is 50-50. He's half white, he's half black. Uh, depending on what social context he is placed in, he will be perceived more as one or the other. Okay, so ethnicity, our idea of ethnicity, it is culturally defined and it is relational to other peoples. It is not a biological constant. The example I always like to use when I talk about the ethnicity and race and identities of who's civilized and whatnot throughout history, um, think of any given people. Take a group of people from all over the world. Okay? Remove, or we can only do this in speech, all right? If this goes beyond speech at all, we're in big trouble. Remove everyone's clothes. <laughs> Wash off all the makeup that anyone's got on. All right? Shampoo everyone's hair and everything, and then don't style it. And have everyone stand there naked and completely unadorned. Okay? And put them all in a police lineup. You cannot identify what the ethnicity or nationality is of anyone in that lineup with any chance of specificity or accuracy. You might get lucky, okay? But if you were to take people from today's Korea, Japan, um, and then China and do this little exercise with them, you would be able to say, oh, Asians, and you'd probably be able to say East Asians, but you couldn't actually say Korea, or North Korea, South Korea, or Japan, or China. Again, you might get lucky, but you're not going to be able to replicate that lucky success over and over again consistently. All you can do is place them into general geographic categories. Same thing goes with anyone else in the world. Put me in that police lineup, along with a bunch of other white people, and you could probably say, oh, their ancestors come from Europe generally. You may even be able to say, oh, very likely he's Northern Europe. I have blonde hair, blue eyes. You could probably say, likely he has Northern European ancestors. Of course, you put my brother in there, he has dark hair and brown eyes. Uh, you might, someone might say, oh, maybe Southern Europe. Well, wait, we have the exact same parents, the exact same ancestry. Okay, you could place us in a general region of the world. Okay, but beyond that... Any more identities beyond that are situational. They're cultural. Our minds have to be convinced that these categories exist. They are not naturally self-evident, created-by-nature categories. They are man-made categories. Yes, there are genetic differences. Yes, there are different body types, bone structures, you know, all that sort of stuff. Okay? But that only gets you to, like, continents or general continental regions. It doesn't give you a race or a nationality or a culture. These things are in our minds. And today I want to talk about the history of how minds have been changed to be convinced that a certain identity exists. Okay? Many of the earliest references to the different types of people that it were seen to exist in East Asian history. They often actually, they didn't have anything to do with race. They would stress geographical and cultural distance from the Huaxia center, not immutable racial traits. 
Okay, it, it, it was assumed that climate, geography, and the distance from the central states, the distance from Zhongguo, could create good or bad customs. If you're in the south, it's hot, it's humid, this produces profligacy, immor immorality, all right, these sorts of things. There were also other markers of civilization that were entirely cultural. Literacy. Are you literate or not? That was a huge one. Could you read Chinese characters and write in Chinese characters? If you could, then you were seen as civilized to a very large extent. It doesn't matter what you looked like. Were you conversant with the ancient Confucian classics? Gender plays a big role. Class plays a big role. The architecture of the cities that you live in. Do, do you, are, are you ruled by a state that has a complex organization and stratified bureaucracy? What about your cuisine? It was often thought that civilized people eat cooked food only. Uncooked food is what barbarians eat. That was often seen as far more important than any sort of imagined racial characteristics. I love it whenever I'm, I, I visit Taiwan or China and I have this big salad or something, or, you know, relatives come visit me, or, you know, friends come visit me, and I'd love to eat a big salad. Um, you know, a salad, a Western salad, is was often seen as uncooked food that is only fit for animals. I think my father-in-law actually said that one time. I was eating a big salad in front of him, and he's like, isn't that what you give uh, dogs to eat? <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, because that was that's culturally specific that the type of uncooked versus cooked food could be a marker of whether or not you were seen as civilized. Clothing as well. Okay, so all these things were just as important, much more important, I would say, than physical markers, physical biological markers. Those are actually a very small part of the ethnic identity equation in the old days. All right, so the fundamental distinction we've established was cultural not racial. I'm not saying that physical designations weren't important or they didn't exist or the Chinese didn't acknowledge them. They did. We talked about darker skin and all these sorts of things. Okay, but it wasn't the be-all, end-all, as is often the case with race today, or at least perceptions of race. Now, what were the two, the main terms that were used um, in the Chinese script? You have hua, and that's the first half of hua xia, the term that we use so often. And then you had yi, all right, E, uh, spelled in pinyin as Y-I, uh, two letters. Um, e was a general term for a barbarian or foreigner or outsider. Okay, if you were a member of Hua, Hua Xia, that meant that it was supposed that you had some sort of knowledge of the morals, virtue, rituals from the Confucian classics. Okay. Um, and if you weren't immersed in these things, then you weren't seen as a member of Hua Xia. Well, this introduces a very interesting uh, 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 problem for us. Uh, are the lower classes that comprise 95% of the entire population of China at any given time, are they members of Hua Xia? They're illiterate. They've never read the Confucian classics. They don't have a clue what's included in them. Um, are they Hua Xia? Or is only... 5% of the entire population actually considered civilized? Um, the answer actually is much closer to the, to the latter than it is to the former. That the lower classes oftentimes were not assumed to be 
members of a civilized Huaxia realm. They had yet to be transformed in a cultural sense. See, if the most important category was racial and not cultural, then everyone in China would be considered civilized. But that wasn't the case. That wasn't the case. The lower classes were generally seen as ignorant, ignorant of proper ritual, and in need of transformation, cultural transformation, by the elite-educated Confucian class. Okay? In contrast to that, if you're not Huaxia, you are E, barbarian. You are ignorant, uneducated. You have unorthodox customs. You know no shame, at least shame as interpreted by the elites of the Huaxia society. Okay? Your passions are unrestrained by ritual. You wear your hair in weird ways, sometimes unbound and unrestrained. Uncivilized people, it was thought, could be and should be assimilated to civilized norms. Okay? By contrast, civilized people who merely have a different civilization should not be targeted for assimilation. This is an important distinction. Okay? There is a distinction between uncivilized peoples who were in need of civilization, and it was an unmitigated good to civilize them. You're bringing them a gift. Wouldn't any uncivilized person want to be civilized? Of course. So the barbarians, the nomads, or the, the tattooed natives down in the south, they, they, they're desperate for transformation. Of course it's a good thing for them to be transformed, i.e. to be assimilated into civilized Huaxia society. However, later on, maybe not in the, you know, the early days, but later on, as you have the development and contact of other major urban sedentary civilizations, it was thought that other civilized people could exist in this world and that they simply had a different Tao, a different way. And they should not be targeted for assimilation. Okay, the Muslims of the Northwest, the Tibetans of the far southwest sort of direction, they were seen as possessing a civilization of their own. And it was not a civilization that was barbarous. It was something that should be respected, retained, ruled according to its own civilizational norms, and not assimilated. It's a very important point to make. But when various Chinese states came into contact with the peoples of the distant south, or let's say Taiwan was a good example, when Taiwan started to be colonized in the 1600s, the people they found there, who are sort of you know, related in a, in a very loose sense to the uh, Polynesian peoples, um, it was thought that they were barbarians, and they should be assimilated. It was good for them. The Miao people of the southwest on the mainland. They should be assimilated. They don't have a civilization of their own in the sense that the Huaxia civilization recognizes legitimate markers of what it means to be civilized. They don't have grand urban architecture. They don't have a literate literary uh, canon. They don't have a recorded history that goes way back. Right? That sort of thing. Now, other sorts of categories. Here I'm going to say most of the time 
people weren't thought of in civilizational or cultural or ethnic terms at all. Oftentimes, people were identified merely through their occupations. Okay? Uh, People that we would now regard as perhaps foreigner or non-Han during the Tang Dynasty. They were simply referred to in the context of their profession. A Persian who came to Chang'an in 700 AD would be referred to as a Shanghu, a merchant Hu, Hu, H-U, the word from the title of this episode being another word that could refer, like, like E, it could refer to a barbarian or simply an alien outsider. So the Shanghu, the merchant Hu, there were the tavern Hu, okay, a Hu who has a certain occupation and they're thought of in that sense. There were dancer who's, there were horse breeder who's, there were singer who's. Various ways of thinking about this. There were also political identifications or occupational designations for what we now think of as the Han. Okay, most of the time when you see people being referred to in the historical record, Ethnicity plays no part in the conception of who these people are. They're just referred to as a farmer, a slave, a noble. They're free or they're servile. They're a man or a woman. They're a nomad or a merchant. They're a taxable subject of this state. Or they're a soldier. Or they're a commoner. Or maybe they're a northerner as opposed to a southerner. If the context is clear, there's just simply referred to as the masses, the people. Sometimes they're referred to in terms that describe their degree of hostility or obedience to the state without reference to any sort of cultural marker. They're described as good people or incorrigible people, obedient people, law-abiding people, or warlike people. There's so many ways that they could be described that had nothing to do with ethnicity or even civilization whatsoever. I want to read two illustrative passages for you from a 9th century treatise written by a Han author, someone that we would now regard as Han, but he himself might not even have used that term to describe himself. All right, And this official of the Tang Dynasty is trying to discuss the distinctions between what it means to be civilized and barbarian. All right? And what we're going to see in these descriptions is a worldview in which race and ethnicity plays no part whatsoever in one's capacity to become civilized or to become a barbarian. All right? So here he is defending the promotion of so-called barbarian E or who candidates into office during the Tang Dynasty. He says, quote, The governor genuinely recommends talented persons and does not show favoritism. If one speaks in geographic terms, then there are Hua and there are Yi. Remember, Hua, Xia, and Yi. Um, civilized and uncivilized. If one speaks in terms of teachings, then are there not also Hua and Yi? Hua and Yi, however, can only be distinguished by their hearts and minds. One must examine their inclinations in order to distinguish the different types of hearts. Note, it's what's in your mind 
that matters, not what's on, on your skin. If one is born in the central prefectures and one's behavior violates propriety and righteousness, then one's physical form is hua, but one's heart is that of an e. But if one is born in a barbarian region, but one's behavior conforms to propriety and justice, ju- uh, justness, then one's physical form is that of a, bar- of a barbarian, but one's heart is hua. So he's opening up the possibility that people originally regarded as barbarians, uncivilized, outside of Huaxia, can in fact become more Huaxia than someone who was born within the Huaxia realm. In other words, you can lose your civilized identity, your Huaxia identity. Think of that today. I mean, the idea that someone who identifies as a Han, a Chinese, can lose their Chinese identity. Right? The idea is almost doesn't make sense anymore because it's imagined that this is some sort of genetic birthright and you can't shake free of it. But Chinese, or the translation of Huaxia as Chinese, used to be something that you could lose through your behavior or you could gain it through your behavior. It was not inherited from your parents' blood. He goes on. There have long been various barbarians who have been multilingual and have come to Zhonghua, Zhonghua being a combination of Zhongguo, the central states, and Huaxia. They admire the humanity, righteousness, loyalty, and honesty of Zhonghua. Although their origins lie in alien regions, they are able to speedily direct their hearts toward Hua. Therefore, I don't refer to them as Yi, the barbarians. Then there are people of Zhongguo, the central states, who have long stubbornly resisted kingly transformation. That's the Confucian term for how to transform someone. Kingly transformation. They have forgotten humanity, righteousness, loyalty, and honesty. Although their origins are in Zhonghua, their hearts skulk among the Yi. Therefore, I don't refer to them as Hua. They have not been banished to the barbarians by the state. Rather, they themselves are responsible for their hearts wallowing in iniquity. There are people who are named Hua, but who have E hearts. There are people who are named E, but who have Hua hearts. There is no need for the barbarians to invade us. Those who disobey the orders of the civilized state who arrogantly act without authorization and do not accept royal authority, and who discard humanity, righteousness, loyalty, and honesty, are incompatible with social norms. How can they not be considered the barbarians of the central states? But then those of the barbarians who look inward and admire the central states, who delight in our humanity, righteousness, loyalty, and honesty, and who desire to be a part of human society, how can they not be the hua of the barbarians. Mark my words, he concludes. There are those called barbarians who are not barbarians. Then there are people with the name of Hua who fail to measure up to those called E. All right, so these are all a lot of abstract ideas, okay? And I'm trying to use them to show that our idea of race is not so important in an earlier place and time. It is a particularly modern obsession. Culture, behavior, 
were seen as much more important, and various external things like your clothing, your cuisine, your hair, your bodily comportment, these were just manifestations of what was in your mind and in your heart, not what is in your blood. All right, now, with all that established, let's talk about the origins of the term Han. Han, a term that is so familiar to us today. The Han Chinese. Where does it come from? How did we get to this term? Well, it's a fascinating story. All right, let's go back to it. The earliest appearance of someone being described as a Han person, a Hanren, is between 200 BC to 200 AD. Okay, and you, we better translate this as person of Han because it was a political identity. Note that these dates overlap perfectly with the Han Empire. Okay, the Han Empire takes its name from a river. Han comes from a river, ultimately. The Han River. Probably it played an important part in the life of the founder of the Han Dynasty or his family. That's it. And someone who became a tax-paying subject of the Han Empire during this 400 years was described as a Hanren, a political designation. But it only meant that you were a political subject of the Han Empire. Just like someone from the previous empire, the Qin Empire, which only lasts 15 years, was called a Qinren, a person of the Qin. That's it. So clearly, that's not an ethnic designation. Anyone who pays taxes to the Han state was referred to as a Han person. Alright, no race content included there whatsoever. Han also had an alternate meaning of simply a tough guy, or a grunt, or a defiant young men who raise mischief. Not really a positive connotation at all. These are your first two earliest, well three, a river, the name of a state and its subjects by extension, or a tough guy who causes trouble. Those are your first three definitions of a Han. So where does our sense of a Han come from? All right, as an ethnic term, we need to recognize that most of the work of creating ethnic identities, ethnic institutionalization, or ethnic classification, seems to have been done in Chinese history, not by the people that we now think of as the Han but by the northern zone nomadic peoples, i.e. the Hu, H-U, or E, the people who are often referred to most commonly as E or Hu by the elite educated members of Huaxia. Alright, these nomadic or semi-nomadic peoples in the north, what we now think of as present-day Mongolia, roughly, but other areas too, um, we know that they form states and empires almost continuously from about the 4th century AD all the way up until the 19th, early 20th century is when they're finally extinguished. Okay, And these are the guys who are actually going to do most of the work of defining what is a Han in an ethnic sense and who belongs in that, ca in that category. The people who become defined as Han themselves, often don't think that much about ethnicity. Okay? When you have a state that is located in the south, based in the southern agricultural regions, everyone is a farmer. Right? Everyone's a farmer. Sedentary farmers. 
And they're all ruled by a similar state whose institutions and script and regulations seem fairly similar. And so there was not usually seen as a need to develop a rich lexicon to describe the differences among us. Usually the only major difference that was described in southern agricultural states was that between northerners and southerners. That was it. It was a geographical designation only. The Han spent much more time developing a rich lexicon to describe the various types of barbarians. Well, they had all kinds of words to describe barbarians that came from each direction. In addition to hu and yi, you also had the the jia, the rong, the man, the di. <laughs> barbarians in different contexts had different names. A lot of names for barbarians. Okay, What you're finding here is each side is describing the other side and ascribing identities to them. And then these identities are internalized by the other side. In fact, most ethnic identities, as we think of them today, are created by outsiders who attempt to describe new peoples they encounter with easily identifiable traits. China is what the Indians called the Qin Empire. Because Qin in China, right? you can see the similarity there. And then the name sticks ever afterwards, even though the Qin Empire lasts for only 15 measly years. And yet it lends its name to what everyone from the rest of the world will call the East Asian continental states, China. The Japanese and Koreans both got their name from the Chinese. That's what the Chinese called the Japanese. The Chinese called the land of Japan where the sun originates from. They called the Koreans the Chaoxian dynasty, the Chosun. These names came from the Chinese to begin with, outsiders. And the Chinese, too, will get their enduring ethnic classifications from people that they regard as outsiders. All right, our story begins in the 5th century AD, the 400s. Han as an ethnonym is created from scratch by the Northern Wei Dynasty. The Northern Wei Dynasty lasts for about 140 years from 390 to 530 AD. What we need to understand about the Northern Wei Dynasty is that it is one of the first, perhaps the first major northern hybrid state. Remember, we had a whole lecture on the northern hybrid states. This northern hybrid state was ruled by a people who in Chinese are known as the Xianbei people, the Sarbi, from the Tabgach tribe. And they will set up shop in what is now northern China. They'll be the first major state to adopt Buddhism as well. Now, one of the major problems that the first major northern hybrid state has to face is that when they start to conquer large sedentary peoples, populations, and adopt the Chinese script and Chinese words for things, they realize that the word for civilization, Hua, is sort of by default synonymous with the sedentary agricultural dwellers who are now their subjects. The Hua are being ruled by people who originally were not really included in that term. And it says these people referred to us as Yi, or Hu, barbarians. However, now that we rule over them, and we have some desire of acculturating ourselves to them, not assimilate, we don't want to assimilate, but we are going to adopt some of their most definable civilizational traits and features, and we are going to live in cities from now on in palaces and wear some of their clothes and adopt some of their language and keep records of the state in their script. So, 
We want to we we have pretensions of being regarded as members of the Huaxia community as well. But we're not our subjects. And we're proud of our identity as Sarbi people. We're proud of that identity. And we don't want to lose that identity. And we want to preserve our privileged position and our privileged ancestry while still being regarded as a member of Huaxia civilized society. So, if we're going to be the Huaxia Sarbi, the Sarbi Chinese, if we think of Chinese in cultural terms and not racial terms, and I'm happy to translate Huaxia as Chinese and just say they're trying to create an identity for themselves as Sarbi Chinese, then the people who were previously regarded as Chinese need a new term to distinguish them. Because we're not the same, but we are all under the umbrella of Huaxia civilized people, i.e. the Chinese. So, that new term was drawn from the previous major state, the Han Dynasty. That's your identity, you subjects. Your new identity for the agricultural sedentary peoples living under our rule in the north, only in the north. The northern way did not conquer the south. In the Yellow River Valley area, you are now referred to as Han. And we're Sarbi. Now, both the Han and the Sarbi are Huaxia. But you're Han Huaxia, and we're Sarbi Huaxia. Now, the Southerners were not included in this Han identity. You know, this is another, you know, I want to remind you of this, because today, the term Han includes, you know, everyone in what is considered the inner provinces or the heartland. And someone as far south as Hong Kong is considered Han. That was absolutely not the case in the beginning. Han was reserved for northern agriculturalists under the Northern Way rule who paid taxes. They had another name for the other sedentary agriculturalists of the South who were not under the Northern Way rule. They're referred to as the Nanren, Southerners. Okay, in a recognition, an early recognition of one of the major cultural distinctions between within Huaxia identity, that between Northerners and Southerners. And that's a distinction, actually, that's still around today. Now, each successive Northern hybrid state will pick up where the Northern way left off and add further nuance to the diversity of the people regarded as living within the Huaxia umbrella, but not being Han. Because you want to make sure you make a distinction between your Han subjects, who do not rule the state when a northern hybrid state is in control, and the nomadic or semi-nomadic conquerors who rule over them and in concert with their Han allies. Okay, It's the nomadic outsiders who create these ethnic identities. They're the ones who have the greatest stake in making the distinctions and making sure that they stick. Now, when you don't have a northern hybrid state, as you're not going to get about, you know, about half the time, you have a northern hybrid state and half the time you don't. And when you don't have a northern hybrid state, that means you have a southern agricultural state or states, many of them, oftentimes there's many of them. And southern agricultural states, having had the term Han imposed upon them by the nomadic conquerors, now they just revert to the default and they say, well, we're Han, we've sort of adopted this identity to some extent. And, but we're also Huaxia, and yet we're not ruled by barbarian nomads anymore. So Han equals Huaxia. Well, isn't that wonderful? Now we get our origins of the idea of the Han Chinese, 
The fact that the Han equaled the Chinese and the Chinese equal the Han. That's something that southern agricultural states have a vested stake in. It's the default identity for them. Once they've been identified as Han by the northern nomads, but then the northern nomads are gone. Their state has fallen apart. Well, then Han just equals Hua. Now, the Mongols, who conquer the region, who, who conquer all of China in the 13th century and rule for about 100 years or so, they will actually come up with one of the first comprehensive ethnic hierarchies. And it's interesting, it's instructive to look at the ethnic hierarchy that, 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 that they produce, because it'll tell us something about the changing meanings of Han during this time. All right, we're in the 13th, 14th century now. And the Mongols say, here is the graded hierarchy of social positions according to ethnicity, which again, the northern hybrid states care more about than the southern agricultural states. Say number one, well, who do you think is number one? Take a guess. The Mongols, obviously. Number two, the Sumuren. The, Sumu, the Sumuren, uh, literally, the characters for Sumuren are colored eye people, but that's not actually literally what it means. What it actually means is the assorted categories of different people. And that was the catch-all category for Persians, Arabs, Uyghurs, uh, outsiders who were brought in to have administrative positions, the dependent intermediaries that we talked about when we talked about the northern hybrid states. And at the bottom of the hierarchy, number three and then number four, Number three was Han. But still, Han did not include the Han that we think of today. Han, under the Mongols, was just, it was only the farmers in the north who were ruled by the previous northern hybrid state, the Jurchen Jin dynasty. Now, anyone in the north who was ruled by the Jurchen Jin dynasty is referred to as Han. Now, you can imagine that is going to include a lot of people who later on would not be regarded as Han. So Han at that time just meant anyone in the north who was ruled by the people we just conquered. And then they had a number four, Nanren again. Oh, there it is again, that term, Southerners. Southerners were always looked down upon as those who resisted the longest and were the hardest to rule. Okay, and they're number four on the Mongol hierarchy. And then finally, the Mongols are succeeded by the Ming Dynasty. And the Ming Dynasty is the largest southern agricultural Han state that ever exists. All right, it's actually founded by Nanren. It's founded by southerners. The largest state to be founded by southerners and not include what we now think of as non-Han peoples. I mean, not really. I mean, yes, they had some peoples in the southwest, the Miao peoples and all that. Um, but, you know, by and large, the ethnic peripheries that we now think of as Tibet, Xinjiang, Mongolia, Manchuria, they were not ruled by the Ming. They, 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 they never got the empire that far. Okay, The Ming will be the first then to unify Nanren and Han. Han previously had always meant either specifically the farmers of the north or anyone in the north. Okay, north of the of the Yangtze River, basically Yellow River Valley. And then there was always a separate term for the Southerners, and it was a derisive term. You're just Southerners. The Ming will be the first because they have the South and most of the North outside of nomad lands. The Ming are uniquely positioned to say, well, all the agriculturalists, all the farmers of the North and the farmers of the South are in our state. 
The Northerners, previously were referred to as Han, there's a long precedent of that. How about we just say we're all Han? Both the agriculturalists in the North and the South. We're all Han. So Han first attains its something approaching its present-day meaning during the Ming Dynasty. This puts us, puts us between 1368 and 1644. Okay? And it's still going to undergo many changes. And it's still not a homogenous term at all. During the Ming, many of the Southerners will be quite disconcerted, quite annoyed to learn that they're the same as the Northerners, who they often regarded as half-barbarians themselves because they're in such pro close proximity to the nomads. And the Northerners, many of them are distressed to learn that they're grouped in together with the Southerners, who they looked down on for so long. You people get conquered all the time. You don't conquer the North, we conquer you. Now we're in the same category as you? Both Northerners and Southerners could bristle at the idea that we're all Han. No, we're not. Northerners and Southerners say to each other, I can't communicate with you. Our speech is different. We have different customs. We haven't lived in the same state for, for hundreds of years. We're not the same. But the Ming will now use Hua and Han interchangeably. Something that we have not seen yet on such a large scale. All right. So in that sense, Han has assumed something approaching its form that it'll have in the 20th century. But of course, there's still a lot more to that story that we need to tell. Okay. The Manchus will succeed the Ming Dynasty. And the Manchus now are going to be the most successful northern hybrid state. The longest, uh, the longest living empire over the greatest expanse of land. And the Manchus will go even further. They'll say, no, 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 no. None of this Hua equals Han crap that the Ming were trying to do. Nomads are back in charge, baby. And we are going to bring back the broad umbrella of Hua Xia as a cultural term. And we're going to insert many different people holding that umbrella. And it's not just the Han anymore because we have Xinjiang, Mongolia, Tibet, and Manchuria. We got it all. And we're all members of Hua Xia to one degree or another. I say the Manchus are members of Hua Xia, but we also have a special Manchu identity. We're not just Hua Xia. The Mongols, too, get that category, that designation. The Han will be in there. And then you have the Tibetans and the Muslims who occupy this kind of ambiguous territory where they're regarded as civilized, but are they Hua Xia? Civilized? Well, that's kind of it's a question that's not really openly addressed all that often. As we talked about with Islam in China, there were some Muslims who wanted to be regarded as both Muslim and Huaxia, but many would say, I'm not interested in that. We got our own civilization. Regardless, the Manchus will create five major groups who are ostensibly equal to one another. They're not going to put a hierarchy like the Mongols did. They're going to say we have Manchu, Mongol, Han, Tibetan, and Muslim. And we're all, just to one way or another, we're Manchu Hua, we're Mongol Hua, Han Hua, Tibetan Hua, and Muslim Hua. Or, to use present-day parlance, we're Manchu Chinese, Mongol Chinese, Han Chinese, Tibetan Chinese, and Muslim Chinese. Okay? And that will be the inheritance of 20th century leaders. When the Manchu state goes by the wayside. When the last northern hybrid state goes extinct, 
The legacy for the 20th century state, which will be dominated by the Han people for reasons we've already discussed before, industrialization will destroy the advantages of the nomads. And finally, the demographic, cultural, economic center of the empire will will no longer just be exploited by the nomads with superior military and political power in the north. They will have the capacity to now create the factories and the guns and the machineries that will put them into power and utterly destroy the livelihood of the nomads. So now it's overwhelmingly the people who were occasionally bred to regard themselves as Han equals Hua. And they will be in power in the 20th century, but they will inherit the legacy of a northern hybrid state that said, no, 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 there's Hua Xia and then diverse, five different diverse identities behind that. Okay, and there's going to be a tension with that throughout the 20th century and today. All right, the tension of, does Han equal Chinese? Or is Chinese a cultural term that includes many people in addition to the Han? And in this lesson, one of the ironies of history that I want to make sure we understand with, one of the takeaway points that I want to make sure that we understand here, is the role that non-Han peoples play in creating the Han identity. And in a sense, creating what we, what we think it means to be Chinese. Okay, the idea that Han is an unchanging category of eternal race or Chinese for that matter is absurd. All groups are constantly changing and trying to redefine what it means to be this or that, Han or Chinese. The meaning of Han changes over a 1500-year period, it changes every couple hundred years it changes. The meaning of Chinese changes as well. I mean, one of my favorite examples is when you get to the 20th century, you start seeing a mode of dress being adopted for Chinese women, Han women, that becomes the quintessential Han national dress, the qi pao, this slim, fitting, elegant dress that you often see, you know, 1920s Shanghai and whatnot. And now, if you go to sort of Chinese New Year's Days, parades, or cultural events and whatnot, or Chinese weddings. The women are urged, encouraged, and many of them will wear chi pao's to express their Chineseness. You know where the chi pao comes from? It was the Manchu form of dress for Manchu women during the Qing Dynasty. Obviously, the chi pao itself looked a little different. It wasn't quite so form-fitting in the 18th century. They're, you know, they're a little more prudes than they are today. They weren't showing off the bodies of their Manchu women quite so tight. They were a little looser. But the basic idea of that dress was created by the Manchus. And now it's seen as the national dress of Chinese women. That's what you wear to express your Chineseness. My, my daughter and son have International Day at their school in two days. And some of the Taiwanese moms, the Chinese moms, are talking about how they're going to wear a chi pao as their national dress. And I can only smile when I think of that because I think, ah, the irony of ironies. Chinese national identity will be put on display for the rest of the school to see by wearing a modified form of Manchu dress. Isn't that wonderful? Okay. We will leave behind ethnicity here, and our next episode, we will talk about imperial law. Look forward to having you join me. 